All right, we are live on Facebook. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I am one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. Thank you for joining us this evening or afternoon or morning, depending on when you are listening to this. If you are not watching the live stream, uh, we are here to review the fourth episode of Andor. And boy, is it a good one. So with that said, let's rock and roll. Uh, joining me this evening in order as they appear on my Zoom screen, we have Bethany Blanton, who is a longtime Star Wars fan, and I don't know the rules if we can say who she works for, uh, other than it does involve a, a military branch, uh, and she's here in her uh, uh, personal capacity and does not reflect yeah. the, the views of that uh, agency. Uh, as long have... as I say that, I can say that I'm in the Space Force, so okay. as long as I'm like, this is me speaking as Bethany and nothing official. Exactly. All right, good. Um, that should go for all of our employers. So <laughs> next up is Jordan Hooper uh, coming to us from Oregon. Then Stephen Tullefield coming uh, to us from San Francisco. And then from Pennsylvania, we have Thomas Harper. And I am remote in Los, uh, Los Angeles County, Long Beach, California, dog sitting for two classmates who were also huge Star Wars fans. They're at Oktoberfest without me. So that shows where I rank. So let's get into the issues from episode four. But as we get our notes up, let's do a lightning round of how did this make us feel? Bethany, your thoughts on episode four. Ooh, I really enjoyed episode four. And it's going to sound really nerdy, but looking at all of the World War II era history and structure brought into the empire in this episode uh as well as um just all of the newer plot threads that are being introduced uh my mothma was amazing uh, i just i ate this episode up i know people some people said that it was slow but i was just like on the edge of my seat being like oh yes give me more so that that was my takeaway anyway jordan I was one of those people who said this was slow. Um, it's not a particularly bad thing, I think. I enjoyed the episode. It's just after the kind of whirlwind of the first three, uh, this felt like somebody slammed the brakes really hard. But that's probably a good thing for the rest of the series. And I think this serves as a really good uh, setup for where they're going to go with the rest of the series and the rest of the um plot of the start of the rebellion i did take issue with the character uh named perrin being such a jerk but that's probably a personal thing i did not like him yeah there's uh we can talk about no fault divorce shortly so let's uh bring up the issue to, to Stephen. your your feelings on this episode well i was really excited to see coruscant uh, as we said last week i was really looking forward to the um the photography of it and that over um that straight down pan of the coruscant skyscrapers was basically everything i ever wanted it was so beautiful that was great and i um i'm a sucker for a heist film and so i felt like even though it was a lot of dialogue i feel like this is the part of the story where everyone's telling the audience what the heist plan is going to be and then we get to see how it all goes south so i'm i'm very much looking forward to it thomas I love this episode. Uh, Jordan, I won't count you within this group of people, but there's there's a class of 
Star Wars fans, and, and I'm not saying that they're bad fans by any measure, but if it's not Darth Vader roaring down the hallway in pursuit of the Death Star plans, then it's too slow for them. And that's okay. Like, if that's your Star Wars thing, then then have at it. But to me, that brake pump that you describe is like the Empire being built into like this very dangerous entity. Finally, it's not a bunch of goofballs tripping over themselves and, and uh, you know, not accomplishing what they set out to accomplish. They feel real. They feel dangerous. And they feel like an existential threat. Uh, that's worth fighting against for the whole galaxy to, to everyone from the, the team there on Aldani uh, to uh, Luthen to even Mon Mothma. And I just think it was a fantastic uh, start to finish. This is everything I want from a Star Wars show. Uh, I will echo Bethany's observation about the World War II feel like you're in Berlin, 1935, trying to not get hung by the Gestapo. And are you a white rose trying to, you know, stand up to the oppressor, oppressive regime? Because uh, not everyone was on board uh, with Adolf. So I, having that, it's more than a spy thriller. Uh, it, it definitely can be categorized as that, but it does have that military thriller. You're fighting the police state. You're trying to do it in a way where you don't get shot in the middle of the night and you don't know who you can trust because your driver keeps changing. There are new people all around all the time and you feel like you're being watched. And Mon Mothma has to deal with a loser of a husband and deal with you know, a horrific situation at the same time with rising fascism, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, the whole, like the ISB structure actually mirrors in many ways the structure and mission sets of the Nazi SS, which was horrifying. Uh, like just how the the rising fascism piece of it was just chilling because you see a bunch of people who uh, aren't necessarily evil, who believe in the reign of the empire. Like they don't see the, the empire's more evil nature. They just think that the empire is bringing order. And they're and acting in accordance. You also get the factor of they're set up to compete with each other. And in the Nazi Germany did that with their officers, where it wasn't a nice unified approach. They were cutthroat and uh, trying to sabotage each other, uh, which made it, uh, on one level, that worked to our advantage because they weren't able to organize a response to Normandy. But on others, it, it highlights that they didn't play well together. And you're seeing that with the Imperials with you know, Mr. Chief ISB. It does not seem like the fun guy you want to hang out uh, with compared to uh, you know, the subordinates who are clearly competitive uh, with each other. I will send my subordinate. And so that way he does, doesn't pique his interest. And was that some weird double entendre of... of that or did she just know no he hates my guts anyway so i'm not going to go interact with him uh so yeah just a very uh hostile work environment waiting to happen uh, but the first legal issue that we have is one that we know very well it reminds me of one of my early blog posts i did about firefly with uh contract formation when you're having a heist 
which we see echoed in this, where we have the enforceability of a contract to steal the quarterly payroll of the imperial sector, that if uh, Cassian going by Clem is able to deliver on this, will get paid $200,000. So there's offer, you know, the, the analysis is offer, uh, acceptance, consideration, and performance. And let's revisit contract law. And, and Stephen, this looks like your moment. <laughs> hit, me. Yeah. hit me. I love a good contract that has an unlawful purpose because it's so funny how um, they, um, we sort of think about contracts as being enforceable or valid contracts. But of course, courts will only enforce contracts if they're not illegal. And these kinds of contracts, just like pretty much every other contract ever formed in the Star Wars universe, is to do something illegal, like whether it's to, um, you know, bring someone in on a bounty or to do something, uh, something else terrible. Um, this is just another very long series of unenforceable contracts. But of course, people can make deals with each other to do kind of anything. It's just that you can't go to court and get a court to enforce the contract if someone doesn't perform. Saw Guerrera for, fulfills that role in the Star Wars universe. You have to adjudicate <laughs> all claims before Saw. Such a sympathetic forum too for- Yeah, for exactly. <laughs> Gives breaks left and right to call him the candy man. Yeah. yeah, it's putting aside recreational boggly usage, there's a, a bigger issue at play where if it's illegal, the court's not going to enforce it. It's why gambling debts are not enforceable. But granted, that's when the mob breaks your leg. So again, don't they're do just that. enforceable in a different way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the hot syndicate will come after. Yeah. Yeah. I was sort of reflecting on this too and kind of remembering back to law school and I, I was in law school uh, 20 years ago. And in our contracts class, we talked when we talked about unlawful contracts. I remember it was it was just at that period where uh, couples were contracting with surrogate mothers to to bear children, um, and that was an unlawful purpose. A lot of courts wouldn't enforce those contracts, um, and until states amended their contract uh, statutes to permit these kinds of contracts, um, it's a very different world, um, of course. But um, but yeah, it's funny how we've come in many ways what's interesting is that you do have in in real world context i mean not not for theft but there are contractors out there hired by the military to do at least not in the u.s strictly military things they're not hired to go out and fight and uh you know take the place of a military unit but look no further than Ukraine to see uh, this sort of thing playing out on the battlefield, the shadowy Wagner group and, and the things that they're up to in Ukraine and, and elsewhere around the globe. Uh, so it's not unheard of for, for large sums of money to be paid uh, for sort of nefarious things. I think about the, the contract formation and the power imbalance here between Luthen and, and Cassian. Luthen's got all of the power uh, he needs something very specific out of out of Cassian. Uh, it may or may not make or break the mission, but what's Cassian going to do? He's offered a life sa uh, life changing amount of money. Uh, this sort of retribution aspect uh, to to this mission and this fight. And Luthen's got him on a ship. He could take him anywhere. He could take him to the Imperial authorities and dump him off right in the in the front of a an ISB station or 
uh, to law enforcement. And so uh, for, for Cassian to not have any sort of recourse, I mean, that's the danger of entering into a contract like this. Uh, not only is it unenforceable, but there's, there's often one side on the short end of that stick when the contract is struck. But that's frequent with many contracts. And I think back to the Civ Pro example of Carnival Cruise, where Carnival Cruise had in their uh, ticket agreement saying that any lawsuit needed to be brought in, I guess it was Florida, uh, some other state. And people from, I think it was Washington, wanted to sue because of something that bad that happened on the cruise that they were on. And they wanted to sue under their home state's laws and they couldn't. And part of the attack was there's no negotiating the form selection clause when you buy your tickets and thus there's a power imbalance. And the court said, yeah, but that's just- Don't buy the ticket. Yeah, it's like, don't buy the (laughs) ticket that that they don't wanna have to negotiate with every person who wants to buy a ticket. This gives them uh, something that's predictable that they know what what laws they're going to be dealing with. And and again, so there's a business sense for it. This is not that situation. This is, is, I could drop you off someplace else and you could just go on your merry way. It's like, that is- sounds like Carnival Cruise. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not so different. (laughs) Probably less chance to get sick. What <laughs> he has On been losing s- ship, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and uh, I, I don't, Bethany, I don't know your cat's name, but I'm glad the cat is participating. Yes, and, this and- is Lewis Kitty. He has been staring at you guys for like 10, <laughs> 10 minutes now, just completely enthralled watching everyone. <laughs> he has that hunting look, so. Uh, he's he's very attentive. He's very interested. He is a podcast fan now. He's a colonel in the ISB, so watch what you say. <laughs> it must be yeah. soothing voices that makes the cat feel safe. So <laughs> pivoting to the next contract issue was the bailment of the Quatai Signet, which got legacy uh, fans all excited. Uh, I am not one of those fans, so I did not understand the full significance of it. And I'm sure Bethany or Thomas will be able to jump in and fill fill us in on that. But the legal issue is, this almost sounds like contract consideration, that it's a down payment. Because Luthen gives a necklace that has a kyber crystal on it that's worth at least 50K if uh, Cassian sells it. And, but he wants it back from Cassian. So, it could be interpreted several ways that if Cassian runs or if the mission goes sideways and he's still alive at the end of it, you can get 50 grand out of it and go on with his life. But if it's successful, Luthen wants it back and then Cassian gets 200,000 credits, which, Kind of sounds like Brewster's Millions to some degree, which might be a really dated reference that only Stephen, maybe Jordan would understand. But um, there's definitely some some weirdness to that. And uh, 
who wants to jump in and, and help analyze this? I mean, the only reason it struck me as kind of like a bailment was that that's sort of a classic situation where you give someone a chattel or personal property, but you don't relinquish permanent possessory interest in it. You just sort of give it to someone to take care of for you. And so it struck me as like, I wonder if I'm I'm fascinated by the Kuwaiti signet. I because it's it seems to me to be um, an echo of kind of Rogue One where. Uh, um, she had the kyber crystal around her neck um, as sort of almost a good luck charm. So I'm wondering if um, Luthen is connected to the force in some way and feels like having this talisman will help ensure the success of the mission or something. And so that's why he wants it to be with him. Um, but he wants it back. So um, I'm I'm really intrigued by it. Um, I'm, I, I, I know a little bit of the, about the Rakata and like the Rakata Empire and the invasion, but um, they showed up in the um, the old Republic that I played for years, um, and so I, I'm familiar with them from that, but I don't know a lot of the legends. Um, yeah, but again, like you said, it's like a down payment almost, some sort of consideration too. Yeah, it, it, it's doing multiple things that normally don't go together. Bailment and consideration are two separate legal theories, and consideration can be a peppercorn, so it can be a kyber crystal, that totally is fine. Like there, there's zero interest in that, but I want it back. Does it, there isn't illusory consideration. You can have an illusory contract of, you know, you can eat whatever you want. It's like, okay, that's not a specific term. Um, thus it would be unenforceable. This is, this is just kind of weird. Uh, are you the, any of the other lawyers want to jump in on this? It, from a story perspective, it's interesting because it, it wouldn't make sense. Luthen probably could, uh, you know, just hand him 50,000 credits, although maybe, maybe not because of the conversation that he has with Mon later in the, the episode, but he could do that. That wouldn't really serve much of a purpose. He'd be putting him at probably arguably more risk, sending him off. It's not practical. Um, so it makes sense that he would put this up as, as sort of collateral against Cassian's service. There was also like the, the clear meaning there, I think uh, sort of raised the stakes for Cassian. Uh, it's clear to him that Luthen is made of more than just money. And so by, by putting this up as opposed to the transaction uh, over that star path unit in episode two had a, a completely different character to it. Like this is this is something deeply meaningful as opposed to the first one, which was meaningful, but it was just a recruitment type trade. Um, yeah, so in any event, it. Um, I, I also enjoyed the, the lack of gray area there. So often these contracts that, you know, questions of bailment, there's uh, questions about intent or whatever. Luthen makes it crystal clear just how, how important uh, and how valuable uh, that piece is to him and not not for money's sake. It, it also puts Luthen into the category of he's a believer. He has faith. He understands history and knows that they're uh, bringing another Lucasfilm. We are merely moving through history. So there's there's that element uh, to him as well. And, and again, to pull in a little serenity that he believes in the cause and is willing to put everything on the line for it. Now, I have not read any of the EU books. For anyone who has, can they fill us in on what this 
Spider Empire was, because I am not that reader. Anyone? Well, they were um, they were an ancient race of uh, dark side users, and they kind of enslaved the entire galaxy. They um, the they're attributed the um, origin of hyperspace is attributed to the Rakata. Um, and they're really weird looking guys. They're kind of like, they have to be cone heads and like these eye stalks off the side of their heads. It's sort of wow. funny looking. Um, yeah. So, but they went, they went extinct um, at some point. Um, I think it was attributed to some sort of illness or the dark side sort of consumed them as a culture and civilization. Um, but it's sort of like, um, if you, if you're familiar with the Jedi Fallen Order, they, they resonate, like their history kind of resonated with the history of the Zepho, like those sort of force users, yeah. kind of very powerful, very proud, um, that sort of succumbed to the dark side of the force and just vanished from the face of the galaxy. Okay. Yeah, and it was, it was kind of like, it's, it's interesting that Luthen brings this up because I think he's a very shrewd individual. And on the one hand, he's very much gambling on Cassian, while on the other hand with Vel, uh, he's making sure to ensure that gambling a little bit, like, you know, if he's a liability, he's disposable. Um, but he really believes that there's a good chance that Cassian will be, uh, a really good asset to the rebellion's cause. And he believes that Cassian deep underneath the surface somewhere also believes in that cause. And so the, I've, I've played Knights of the Old Republic and some of the Old Republic, um, and the sense that you always got from the Rakatans is that their fall was so utter and complete and disastrous for their entire race, for the entire galaxy, for the millions of slaves, for everything that happened that was so horrendous that those who fought against them proved that no matter how dark the darkness gets, there's always a real chance for hope. And that's essentially what Luthen is trying to tell Cassian, um, even though he doesn't say that in so many words. That's kind of the story behind um, the end of the Rakatan Empire is that there is always hope. Um, and so it's a very subtle weaving in of the A New Hope, Rogue One threads of hope, uh, which I greatly appreciate it. I was squealing internally. Yes. So I, I saw this as a lot more sinister than you guys did. And I may just be pessimistic about people in general, but I saw this as Luthen giving Cassian something that if Cassian ever tries to sell, he's going to be able to trace straight back to him because Kyber, at least in the old Republic and presumably in the fledgling empire, uh, trade in Kyber was really controlled and restricted they talk about that in um oh, i'm blanking on the name of it but the book about uh, obi-wan's time as an apprentice under qui-gon they that's a, a big point in that book is that the trade in these gems is pretty restricted so i saw that as a trap run and mm -hmm. we'll find you um but maybe that's just me but i, th I think doesn't it, know his it profession. is yeah, like I think it's actually all of the above. Like Luthen is an incredibly shrewd human being. And so he's kind of balancing this, like his belief in the cause is to the extent that 
he is not afraid to sacrifice Cassian if he doesn't win Cassian over. And Luthen is not as arrogant as to think that he's 100% correct about Cassian. He's open to being wrong and basically says as much in a seemingly pretty callous way to Vel. Like, meh, he's disposable if he doesn't come through. He so, forgot sure. to mention, grab that necklace off of him if if you kill him. Right. So maybe I don't know if you have side. to mention that. It's just, it's implied. It's it's going like, hey, that's really expensive. We should not leave his corpse with that. So go get him. I I appreciated it. I think we'll see those being sold at Galaxy's Edge very soon. Uh, because like I'm pretty sure all of us would buy one. I'm pretty sure there isn't someone Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, the mouse can take my money. Yeah, I'm shocked that they're not already selling them. That <laughs> <Yes. laughs> they weren't rolled out simultaneously because it's like that looks pretty cool. <laughs> like, I can see that as a good gift. So yeah, didn't didn't bother me. That said, we do have mercenary issues now to talk about, which is an offshoot of the contract formation. Let's get into. Uh, the law of war issues here, which I'm sure, Thomas, you can help us understand. This is also the reason that I love Andor so much. It's just pack, like ready packaging these issues for me, uh, <laughs> which I appreciate, whether they realize that they're doing this or not. So mercenaryism is, um, it, as far as a legal construct goes in the, in the context of an armed conflict, um, a term that is really, really tightly defined under the Geneva Conventions and specifically the, the uh, additional Protocol 1, which was uh, ratified in the 70s. Um, it's treated as customary law, so the concept, the definition of it, and that just means that uh, there are certain rules that are sort of codified as uh, treaty law, and then there are a whole other body of law of war called customary rules. These are just rules with equal force of law, but they've been developed over the course of decades, millennia in some cases. Uh, they are commonly understood practices that states follow in conflict after conflict after conflict, and they become binding because of that customary nature of them. So mercenaryism, uh, interestingly, because it's had such an infamous history, obviously that's a very kind of controversial thing to define under the law. They're uh, places like Africa, where mercenaries have played a good role in some cases, a bad role in others. Um, we're seeing it play out sort of nefariously in Ukraine. All that's to say that that AP1 has a really detailed definition. It's like a, a six-part definition for what a mercenary is. Cassian meets most of these, but but what I wanted to dial into is this desire for private gain that's required for, for mercenaries. That's sort of what distinguishes them from a normal soldier. And it's not just uh, a desire for private gain because, you know, Bethany and I as, as uniformed service members, you know, you, we get a paycheck as part of that service. That's private gain in some way. This is distinguished because uh, the uh, the promise has got to be, or that private gain has got to be excessive or substantial in relation to what a normal sort of service member is paid. So $200,000 for a single mission, Bethany, I think we're paid on the same pay scale overall. 
that's uh, that's beyond where the the even uh, the, the furthest right on the pay scale you can you can go as far as the U.S. military is concerned. So that's a substantial force that checks off that box. Um, the rest of it is is where you get really tight with, uh, in, in terms of who qualifies and who doesn't qualify. And it has to do with your your affiliation with a party to the conflict or uh, a you know whether you have been sent by a state. Bottom line, I th just looking at Cassian's compensation here, I think he qualifies as a mercenary. Luthen uh, presents him that way to Vel. This is a hired gun, he calls him, and, and he's disposable in that sense. He's here to be a redundancy and fill a, a particular role. Um, mercenaryism is not illegal under international law. It's not illegal to go into a battle zone and uh, get paid for the work that you do. The critical distinction and, and one for Cassian and, and in a different way for the rest of that, uh, that crew there on Aldani is that you don't get combatant protections. So uh, a traditional uniformed soldier would get what's called combatant immunity under uh, in an armed conflict that protects you in a lot of ways. It protects you when you're you're captured, especially um, in certain circumstances, you can be declared uh, or be entitled to prisoner of war status if you're captured. That cloaks you uh, both in a, in a very literal sense and a legal sense in a set of protections um, that, that can be very critical for you. Mercenaries get none of those. So if Cassian is captured, he's really hung out to dry. And you're seeing that play out real world right now. Um, Russia has, has captured a number of uh, Ukrainian foreign legion members and accused them of, of the, the crime of mercenaryism. It's not a crime under international humanitarian law or law of war. It is a crime under Russian law, Russian domestic law, and they have a right to enforce that law under IHL. It would surprise me uh, zero if the empire had a similar statute on the books that, that um, criminalized mercenaryism against the empire. And Cassian's putting himself right in their gun sights by doing this. So it's one thing to capture a soldier who's just waving the flag for the, the rebellion, uh, the rebel cause. It's another thing to capture somebody who's doing that but also getting paid handsomely a hired gun uh, that, that typically amps up the, the sort of angst against you. But he's just trying to get away. He's not thinking about any of that. Yeah, and there's <laughs> the Ukrainian side of the story is fascinating to get into because that uh, does remind me of the, what we call the citizens of London, all the US uh, citizens who decided to risk their US citizenship during the neutrality acts and sneak to England through Canada to fight in the RAF to fight the Nazis. <clears throat> we, there were Americans during the thirties who were very much against fighting Hitler. You had Joseph P. Kennedy as ambassador to the United Kingdom saying nice things about the Nazis. Very, very disturbing uh, trend or when the Captain America comic book came out prior to World War II starting, there were people protesting outside of timely comics because they didn't like Adolf Hitler getting punched. So the bullies generally like to keep things to favor themselves. That said with Cassian, yeah, this does sound like a mercenary behavior because he didn't join the rebellion. This isn't like a citizen of London. This is a guy who's trying to get a paycheck 
because he's really out of options after killing two guys who followed him out of a brothel, which, again, he was trying to find his sister, but highlights, don't go to brothels. Maybe try to avoid that. Uh, that said, let's pivot to the issues that we see with the ISB officers who are just not on the same team while working in the same office. They, they don't do a good job of backing each other up. They're just very competitive and they're arguing about jurisdiction. And Jordan, you have some uh, analysis here as does Thomas. So can you help us understand uh, these issues? Sure, maybe. So I thought it was odd um, that they're ostensibly within the same branch arguing about you know whose team has jurisdiction with what uh, i mean on the one hand it's a very very different model than the work avoidance model that you see sometimes so you know props for motivation i guess but on the other hand it doesn't make a ton of sense because either the isb has jurisdiction in which case the ISB as a group, a unit, can take over police action or prosecuting Cassian, or they don't. So one thing it brought to mind for me, and one thing I think it could have been but was not portrayed as, is it could be something like state jurisdiction versus federal jurisdiction, and who has the right to prosecute any particular crimes if the federal government is going to prosecute a crime it has to have a, a federal interest either a federal law broken or happen on federal property or the two big ones they might be the only two uh otherwise you know whatever state it happens in has jurisdiction and the state courts go after and state law enforcement go after whatever so it could be that, and they're arguing as to why they can take it away from um, the corporation, the corpo police, from the first three episodes, which um, would make sense. You know, we need some jurisdictional tie to the empire to come in, for ISB to come in and yoink Cassian away from the locals who have already screwed this up really badly. That wasn't how it was portrayed, though. It was portrayed as, well, the ISB is going to do this, and we just have to figure out which team of the ISB is going to do it, uh, which I will leave the, how it's portrayed to Thomas, because that does not uh, click with anything I've seen. Yeah, this was a fascinating look into... Now, we've never... We've never seen the ISB sort of the inner workings openly portrayed on screen. You've seen bits and pieces of them. You see some of the, the way that the, they operate as this sort of military offshoot uh, with military authority of some type. I mean, think, um, uh, think Mandalorian and uh, Rogue One with the death, the existence of the death troopers and some of these ISB type agents operating as pseudo military commanders. Moff Gideon certainly uh, filled that sort of role, probably pre uh, pre fall of the empire. And I, they're, they're sort of portrayed as like uh, almost like a special operations element of the Imperial military. Like 
they don't have um, they don't have the same restrictions and they have a very specific mission set uh, to execute. I thought it was fascinating. It made me it gave me a lot of questions about how they're organized, how they're operating. Um, we know a little bit in, in terms of the the uh, later shakeup um, of the galaxy once the Galactic Senate or the the, um, the Senate is dissolved. You have these regional governors who have always existed in the imperial structure take full power. The ISB seemingly has uh, these areas of responsibility all over the galaxy assigned to some of their more senior ranking officers. And, uh, you know, baked within that is, is arguably domestic intelligence gathering, domestic and foreign, I suppose, depending on whose jurisdiction and what planet you're talking about. But uh, they're operating sort of like an amalgamation of different U.S. intelligence agencies, CIA, um, Homeland Security, you know, you name it, and uh, and and the ISB has sort of flavors of it. And and Bethany, you brought up uh, Nazi Germany. I, I'm interested to hear uh, your take on that. So this actually made a lot of sense to me. Not in that it's a good thing, uh, but for the first part, actually, how they have divided up what they're calling sectors or like sectors of responsibility. And some of those are overlapping with specific mission sets. Like Deidre has, um, while that specific mission may not lie within her sector, she's trying to claim uh, some level of jurisdiction in uh, the other lieutenant's sector because it's her mission set. So in uh, the US military, um, all of the different branches of service uh, come together and support what are known as combatant commands. And those combatant commands split up what are known as areas of operation throughout the entire earth. So central command focuses on uh, like Asia, Pacific command focuses on everything in the Pacific. Uh, North, Northern command focuses on the United States and surrounding areas. And so the idea that you would be responsible let's say if a war kicks out or a skirmish kicks out, military action occurs in your physical area of operations, you're responsible for being present in that area of operations, responding to anything that occurs there, leading any fights that might occur in that area. Uh, and so that makes sense as well as when you think about space, the space domain from a warfighting perspective starts at hundred clicks about the earth. The cyber domain is anything cyber related. And so it's interesting to see how those mission sets weave into all of the combatant commands across the earth. And that's kind of what the empire is doing with the whole galaxy. The really scary thing is how they're doing intelligence, which is uh, again, in the US military, you have something called intelligence oversight. And that means that no one who's in the military is doing anything domestic intelligence related because that's seen as a massive conflict of interest and something that's incredibly dangerous. Uh, partly because of Nazi Germany where the SS split up intelligence along a, a lot of different areas to include domestic and foreign. And that's how, like, how much terrifying power they had over Germans as well as in fighting their war. Um, was because of how much they could control over 
normal Germans' lives too. So that's interesting to see how a lot of the ISB, when they're looking at different mission sets and when they're looking at internal and external threats, when they're looking at local threats and galaxy threats, they have a significant amount of power when it comes to jurisdiction everywhere. Um, that's Histori extremely concerning. Historically, at least in the Star Wars novels and things I've read, mostly Legends canon now, that's where the ISB shows up. Is there, They pop up to investigate other people in the Imperial Navy um, or people who are suspected of being members of the Rebel Alliance um, or things like that. And they're very, very scarily similar to... Um, some of the Nazi stuff where they're investigating imperial citizens. Yeah, they seem to uh, have the view that their citizens or subjects are the enemy of the state as opposed to the international uh, relations side of the house to, to be the man on the wall to protect against foreign adversaries. This is the cannons are pointed inward uh, as opposed to, you know, their, their rather horrific uh, surgical discussion about- Yeah, yeah, like the very disease could or, pop yeah. up anywhere, like the way they were talking about the disease could pop up anywhere, and how uh, the major praised Deidre for having above the normal quota of prisoners, like talk about a fascist perspective on how to run things. Um this, yeah. is, this is how you get stadiums with, you know, mass executions that, you know, with comedians put up against the wall, that parody is dead and that anyone speaking out against the state uh, is, you know, the enemy. And uh, good thing we don't have politicians who think that way. So on that note, let's let's take a look at... Um, Mon Mothma really, really, I don't know how she ended up married to that dude. Um, maybe it was arranged or he changed horrifically and became okay with fascism. Hey, I'm those... thinking it's, it's like arranged. It's some sort of a cultural aspect given kind of the way that she was talking about his birthday and tradition. I'm thinking it had to have been like, if not directly arranged for her, a like, hey, you have to do this because politics and tradition and all of these things kind of force your hand. Yeah, whatever it is, it sucks because he does not seem to be a fun guy that anyone would want to hang out with because he seems to be okay with, I like the space pirates. I like yeah, but he's throwing a party. He seems like a fun guy. Like, he He's friends with Slymore, the weird bald woman from uh revenge of the sith that creepily sits by the emperor's side at all times right. she doesn't yeah. look fun like like where does his definition of fun come from like she's on the fun end of the table <laughs> yeah like I, I don't know i did not i did not picture her as having any kind of fun personality it's history of the world part one when it's you know pre-french revolution here I love the poor pool and the guys launch through the air and the king takes the shot. 
that's probably their idea of fun. It's not good. It's not wholesome. It's what foments revolution. So they're he seems just to be way too comfortable for this. And having those individuals as guests in their home royally is going to suck. I have a feeling we're going to see it in the next episode of Mon having to navigate how do I not get shot in my own house because my husband is okay with, with the proto-fascists running around. Well, that said, uh, they, oh, go on. I would say what they could be doing is they could be setting him up as kind of the character of warning where they have someone who, I mean, I think we're all set up to like Mon Mothma and she clearly married this guy at some point, but they could be setting him up as the kind of warning to the audience character of, you know, sometimes fascism seems okay if you're on the, the top end of it. And these guys are all friends. And so, I mean, we'll see how they do it. And that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be out of the ordinary for star Wars as a thing to do. Uh, You know, you had, even way, way back in A New Hope, you had uh, Uncle Owen, who, you know, Luke raised Luke and is saying, well, the Empire is someone else's problem. It's a long way from here. It could just be something like that that they're setting up. There, there's, a, I think, a difference to draw out. There's the isolationist. It's not my problem because I'm far away and I don't want to get involved and get shot. I already had one lightsaber wielding maniac in my apartment. I don't need any more. So no, we're going to sit this one out. Two, I'm okay if children are held in a you know concentration camp and they're sleeping on the floor and we're taken from their parents. I'm fine with that as long as I have low taxes. So there, there are different perspectives to being indifferent and cruel. And, and there's a difference between self-preservation and an overt callousness founded on racism and there's a middle ground too though like there's a there's a middle ground but i think we're seeing some characters even if it's not explicitly stated believing the empire's propaganda it's about the greater good and it's about order and they can justify a lot from if you if you carry those perspectives to the extreme you can justify a shockingly horrific amount of terrible behavior oh yeah we can look at the germans yeah Yeah. and the empire has an entire apparatus built around it not unlike some uh uh, real world examples Compnor, the commission for the preservation of the new order i mean that's uh, the imperial structure to to uh, not just sort of propagate, but to also indoctrinate the galaxy into this sort of uh, Palpatine vision for uh, for how things should go. Yeah, it's as long as it's not in my backyard, I'm fine. And that's one of the things I think Star Wars has always done really well is bring that kind of thing to light of you know these concepts order and justice and um peace throughout the galaxy at any cost that the empire seems to stand for great unless you scratch a tiny bit below the surface and see what they're really doing um okay luke is willing to sit out the fight 
until uncle, his aunt and uncle are in danger. And then he sees what's left of them. And then it's, I'm on board. I want to go to Aldron and learn the ways of my, the forest like my father before me. That, that's the kickoff here. So this is different. I mean, like we're in that category of we're going to have a fun dinner party. Uh, and I'm going to be at the fun end of the table because it's my day of days. And what present did you get me? So, which brings us to something disturbing about Luthen and laundering money for his fledgling rebellion that ironically intersected with John Oliver this week about, you know, cultural artifacts and going into museums and private sales. And uh, there's a whole lot of law on that. And it's a super hot button issue of Luthen is collecting things that are of cultural importance and selling them. So it's not like he's a jeweler. It's more than antiques. It's, it's more than that. And on one level, his persona that he dons as his cover raises an interesting question of what was his original personality? Was he the fun-loving art dealer? Or was he always willing to shoot a dude in order to fight fascism? I don't know the answer to this. Um, Why not both? Yeah, it could be both. I mean, <laughs> <but, laughs> the entire, like, the, the hot washcloth and then putting on the wig where you can't tell it's a wig. Good job there. And the outfit and putting on each ring and then practicing the poses like he was getting into character. That's exceptional storytelling right there. I mean, just mm. masterful small moments to show the commitment to how do I not get shot today? And well-timed because everybody who has worked remotely felt that very deeply to their core. <laughs> Maybe not necessarily how do I not get shot today, but I definitely had to remember how to tie a tie. That's for sure. That's true. Uh, it's I work for remotely for a decade prior to COVID. So I didn't have the problem of those who are complaining about, I don't know how to put pants on anymore. Like I never understood that. I'm very type A. Grew up with my grandparents getting up at 6 a.m. And I felt like I wasted the day if I was up, wasn't up before seven. So I am completely down with that. But uh, he's getting into character and it's brilliantly done. And the Easter eggs that we see throughout his gallery are impressive. Uh, and yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, it seemed like, um, at least in terms of the laws of the Republic transitioning into the Empire, that he's running a perfectly legitimate business. Like, the, I would assume that a senator wouldn't be seen sort of public easily entering something that was going that was unlawful so this is it reminded me when we were um doing the hawkeye podcast that you know there's that sort of whole scene where they had that underground very secret very obviously unlawful um sale of of cultural artifacts but this doesn't seem like that this seems more like an art dealer especially since mon mothma had a driver with her that she didn't trust and was pretty certain as a spy if it was unlawful she wouldn't be going there um, in a way that would risk her reputation or give people ammo against her. 
Yeah, it's it's and a high class art dealer. Like if uh, I remember a business trip to Montreal and having some downtime, and one of my colleagues and I went to different art galleries, and it was really neat and it was super high class. He bought some stuff. I bought a book, and I that's what it reminded me of of going through art galleries in Montreal. It's very high class and you could get served a glass of wine if you show up at the right time. And it's, it's an afternoon well spent. Luthen seems to have one of those places as opposed to, do you want a dinosaur skull? Uh, you know, it's a very different, different piece. Well, and maybe under the empire, it doesn't matter that much because the empire does not value or respect other cultures or alien cultures in the legends universe. Um, the empire's version of racism was speciesism and it was infamous for if you weren't human then you really couldn't move up the ranks well unless you had extraordinary talent uh, and aggressiveness like Grand Admiral Thrawn. It was the art collector who throughout Rebels was collecting artifacts along the yeah. way. Yes, back. So the, the, so the empire may just not care enough about culture to have mm-hmm. any real regulations around this. And it, it struck. And I it think struck, Thra- go ahead. I was say I think Thrawn backed that up because he talked at length in, um, I think it was the Timothy Zahn books. He talked at length about how other people in the military didn't value. Um, other cultures and their art and how he had figured out how to plan battle strategies around other the a culture's artwork uh, but he was very clear that it was not something and other officers were very clear that they didn't respect that art so it wouldn't surprise me at all if the empire just said eh, screw it whatever you want to do yeah i could see that yeah. The great thing about Coruscant is that it makes it really easy to determine whether your shop is good or bad. His is on the surface, so it's bathed in light. It's good. He Mon Mothma didn't need to go to some sub-level in the darkness to go shopping there. So that's how you know that Luthen is good and all of his stuff is perfectly legitimate, just like Sotheby's, right? Oh, wait. It's, literally above me. board. Yeah, it's, it's not 1313. <laughs> like, it's a very... Um, and I got to say, this was, I think it was the Coffee with Kenobi guys acknowledged that this was the first time that Coruscant looked real. It, you know, there wasn't a CG element to it. It looked like like Chicago from the air uh, type feel that it, it uh, uh, just the technology to create an alien city makes it look that good now. So it's Again, it's been a long time since Attack of the Clones, and it just it looked good. That said, we got laws about selling cultural history. We have laws protecting Native American uh, burial grounds and artifacts that that's new. That I think that it was dated September 2022 uh, from from looking at at it. So. We have, we don't like cultural artifacts for sale unless a whole bunch of conditions are met. So there's an issue of misappropriation of cultural property and what qualifies as cultural property. And who wants to help explain this? 
So I'll say out of the gate that the there's sort of you have an extensive web of domestic law and one that a web that it's fortunately expanding uh, as as this issue gains traction, gains attention. Uh, there's also uh, international law surrounding. So, so certainly different countries have uh, their own set of domestic laws, uh, but there is an entire web of international law surrounding the trade of this because it's just a uniquely international trade in and of itself. There's an additional flavors if that weren't enough complexity um, where uh, if you have goods that are, are at issue or they're, they're theft or they're uh, movement is at issue during a time of war. And you have another body of law, uh, namely the, the Hague Convention of 1954. And so depending on where the antiquity came from, how it got to you, uh, the, at what time uh, it, it was sort of transported and moved from wherever it originated, it can trigger a bunch of different laws. It could be a war crime, it could be a violation of domestic law, maybe both. Uh, but the whenever you run into the, uh, the you know any of these laws, it's important to understand that cultural property has a really really broad definition, uh, at least in in the Hague Convention, by design. Uh, it, it's not meant to be exclusionary, and so when when you look to um, to Hague, at least it's uh, they speak of objects of great importance, uh, great uh, cultural uh, heritage. Uh, of every people, it's not it's not confined to uh, religious items or secular items. It includes both uh, ropes in archaeological sites, buildings, uh, works of art, things of artistic interest. I mean, it is about as broad as you can draft an item. And, and the drafters, at least of that treaty, were intentional in doing so, because what is an item of, of cultural property to us, to, to those of us on the screen, it's going to be very different than uh, say those uh, in, in other countries. And if you watch the last week tonight's long form segment from Sunday, there's a great example of, I think it was from Thailand, but it was a, a piece of cultural property, this statue that had been removed from its shrine at some point. And it was hanging in the museum, sort of like beautifully displayed as museum displays go. Uh, and when it got returned and repatriated, it went right back into use as a shrine. Uh, you know, it's surrounded by candles, people are coming and doing so very different uh, sort of context for its its use, uh, but still very, very critically important to, to the people who uh, whom it was taken from. And uh, that's why you see such a web of domestic laws, particularly as it pertains to Native Americans, because uh, historically, at least uh, within our country, uh, they've they've borne the brunt of a lot of uh, misappropriation of their own, not just land, but but artifacts as well. A lot of which is still sitting in in uh, museum store shelves. So it's a broad definition, and and that sort of matches up with Luthen's store, uh, his at least his storefront. It sort of classically mirrored what you see, um, at least in the in the last week tonight segment, where you have this front facing store. Uh, with all these great antiquities, some of I think about the Gungan shield that's in there. So some that clearly came from maybe a time of war. We don't know really. He shows off a cudgel that was clearly an instrument of war to Mon Mothma. All sorts of stuff. We don't know the history or 
uh, how it came into his hands. And then there's a whole back area, store area with uh, things in different states of uh, preparation and examination storage, et cetera. And so who knows what, what's there? there? I think the, the thing to, uh, to keep in mind through all of this is that there's a, an idea for folks like Luthen, this idea of a good faith purchaser, somebody who, uh, when they take action to purchase something, even if they're a reseller, if they genuinely and reasonably believe that that item that they're purchasing and, and taking possession of is legitimate, it, it doesn't run afoul of any laws, generally speaking, uh, that, that good faith purchaser is not going to be uh, subject to, to criminal liability, or at least that's a, a very solid defense if a prosecution was brought. So I think the way Luthen is portrayed, at the very least, if he does have some nefarious items in there, I'd like to think he was uh, a good faith purchaser. Did the gift that Mon bought, was that the father from Mortis? I'd have to go back and see. Anybody else catch that? Okay, so I, I've seen some scuttlebutt online where people referenced uh, Mortis, but I couldn't tell. So there are so um, many Easter eggs that I, I know I did not catch all of them. Yeah. Let me go back and pause and zoom. Yeah, there's they again just loving the fans, you know, down to the you know samurai type armor uh that, that we've seen from Bandai uh with different Star Wars characters. So uh and, and there's been a lot about the force awake uh force unleashed as well. So uh, U.S. law uh, also touches on uh, uh, stolen cultural property, and this is section uh, uh, 19 U.S.C. 2607. No article of cultural property uh, documented as uh, appertaining to the uh, inventory of a museum or religious or secular public monument or similar institution in a state party which is stolen from any such institution after the effective date of this chapter or after the date or of entry into force of this convention for the state party, whichever date is later, may be imported into the United States. Long way of saying, like, this isn't a museum. You know, he's bringing stuff in and selling it. Where did it all come from? It's good faith purchaser is one thing, but it, it can go south quickly with material that's gotten from uh, uh, nefariously. Uh, that could be anything from grave robbing to uh, just raiding a cultural site. So there's definite problems with it, but it makes sense from, you know, if you're selling art, you can uh, watch out for uh, uh, the, the Amazon uh, Echo to start talking to you. Uh, but the, the bigger issue of uh, it's reporting you, I know it is super <laughs> awkward. ISB. Yep, yeah, definitely the ISB. I'm going to go and plug it. Uh, no, that's and, the uh, the corporate police from episodes one, two, and three. That's right. The corpos are about to knock your door down. Yes. Don't worry. They have a warrant, though. It's okay. It should be fine. It should be totally fine. What could go wrong? Um, <laughs> uh, that said, it's just art would be one way to launder money. This would, this is probably another because it's kind of art adjacent, uh, but it is problematic. Uh, well, one thing Josh is not giving that money law, laundering advice. 
<laughs> That's right. Asterix. That law don't that you mentioned. Do that, <laughs> don't do this. <laughs> that, uh, the, the, that law that you mentioned, just the, the sort of recent history of it sort of mirrors this conversation that we were having about the value of cultural property or the lack thereof to the empire. Uh, the, the law that Josh cited just there, the CPIA, was only signed into law in like the early 80s, I think it was like Reagan, Reagan's first administration. And it was a, an implementing law to, to, that came on the heels of a, a UNESCO uh, treaty uh, that, that concerned uh, the, the prohibition of illicit uh, import and export of uh, cultural property. But I only raise that to say that that happened in, in some of our lifetimes, right? Um, you know, the, the, this move to, to strengthen and, and really give teeth to protection is only in recent history. And you think about uh, the vast amount of uh, at least U.S. history that were, were, were uncovered by this sort of law. It, it, it didn't look so different than uh, maybe some aspects of, of galactic imperial culture with regard to the the flippancy that we looked or we treated cultural property with. Um, so don't necessarily look at the galactic empire and turn your nose up and say, well, that would never happen here. Like sh surely, surely governments here would never uh, treat items like that so valuable, so callously, uh, because that's, that's only, uh, that, that tide has only changed recently. Yeah. God forbid Star Wars reflect what's actually happened. So never. Yeah, never. It's not like the ISB cats mimic Imperial Japan. Like, nope, not at all. Don't no, worry about no, the jackets. No. So, brings us to another issue of Mon Mothma. She's rightly concerned because of the activity that she's engaged in. Uh, who wants to talk about her liability? I mean, just to chime in to say this is very timely given this is the first day of this is the opening arguments of the people who are accused of, of yes. the keepers um in their seditious conspiracy trial um this is exactly the types of of legal liability that they're facing um the sort of fomenting and bringing uh, armed conflict to the capital with the purpose of undermining a democratic process um and you know mon mothma is sort of our moral um uh she's a really, uh, she's a part of the rebellion. She's a good person. Um, so we think of her as not being a traitor, of course, it's quite the opposite, but under these laws, she certainly faced liability for um, being a seditionist and being a traitor. Yeah, and what's interesting, oh, go ahead. Big difference between the Oath Keepers and those who signed the Declaration of Independence. Big difference between those who decide to fight fascism and those who decide to let's make America fascist, right? And it's it makes a difference who is the person signing the laws, of course, and who is enforcing them. But yeah, yeah. What's interesting with this entire scene and the, the, the sequence with Mon Mothma is it's it's clear just how dangerous she understands her task to be, and she's not officially joined the rebellion. She is not their commander in chief. They've not taken up unified arms against the, the empire. This is all way, way before any of that has happened. Um, but uh, Josh, I think it was you that, that referenced sort of the, uh, this uh, inciting type speech 
as uh, you know being the target in in Nazi Germany or otherwise elsewhere, where you know a, a fascist government will will look at someone who's openly criticizing them and and come after them. And in fact, that's what happens to Mon Mothma just three years after this episode. I don't. We've already seen at least the aftermath on screen. If you've seen Star Wars Rebels, she mentions Gorman in the context of this dinner dinner party. Uh, the Empire's just cut off their shipping lanes and she's worried about a famine breaking out there. Well, that situation escalates over the next three years and leads to this massacre of peaceful protesters, uh, an event known as the, the Gorman Massacre. And that event causes her to take the floor of the Senate and openly denounce the, the emperor, blame him for uh, this, this catastrophe, uh, this murder of civilians, and they immediately uh, make her public enemy number one. Uh, the, the Empire comes after her full force. She flees. And that's the episode that you see in Star Wars Rebels, where the ghost has to link up with her ship. Uh, they save her, take her through a very dangerous nebula. And then she gives this speech to the galaxy above Dantooine. And the Rebel fleet shows up for the first time. So it's a nice, great dovetail. If you haven't Go on and watch that episode. Uh, go search it out. I think it's uh, season three of Rebels. That whole show is worth a watch. It's some Absolutely. of the best Star Wars. Go ever. forth and binge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a difference as well in like the the Nazis would call anyone who spoke out against uh, Nazi Germany a traitor. Um, in, in Russia, Putin is doing a lot of interesting things to anyone who criticizes him. Um, recently one of the Russian oligarchs came out and spoke to CNN and said, Hey, yeah, I've just paid a massive fine because I criticized the war in Ukraine. Um, and so that's one of the things of like, when we look at someone as a traitor, I think it does matter in the context of what's happening. And even within the same episode, we're talking about people exceeding prison quotas that being seen as a good thing, anyone speaking out against the empire is already being targeted as a traitor. So in this imperial system, you can see the noose tightening across the galaxy uh, where you cannot peacefully protest. You cannot peacefully disagree or you'll be seen as a traitor. And so that's kind of the difference is at that point, you are living in a fascist society if you cannot peacefully disagree um, and peacefully protest. And so that's where I think Mon Mothma is on the line right now of like, what can I change from within the system that is becoming more and more fascist? What can I change outside of the system? Because uh, while the empire stands up seemingly overnight in Revenge of the Sith, there is a very gradual process of it becoming more powerful and more fascist across time. Like we see in the opening scenes of, or maybe not the opening scenes, but in A New Hope where we see how uh, the governor system has been taken apart and now it's just Palpatine running everything. Um, yeah, so, so she's still, I think, torn between hey, is there any chance that I can still make a difference from inside of this system? Probably not. Like that outlook isn't looking good. There's, 
uh, in U.S. history, you know, our early days of of uh, electing presidents was bumpy. The you know, in 1800 uh, was pretty vile with the way that uh, Adams and Jefferson went at it. Uh, then uh, 1824, uh, where you had things like, uh, again, got nasty. 1828, where the joke was, it was more honorable to lose. Uh, but then by 1836, uh, when Van Buren runs and wins and is the second vice president to do so, after a two-term president, uh, we have what's called the view of legitimate opposition, that the other side winning doesn't mean it's the end of the country and that people are going to be taken out and shot. Whether or not that's still the case is up in the air for 49% of the country, and that's a scary thing. That said, it took us a while to get to the viewpoint that the other side wins, it doesn't mean it's the end. Mon Mothma doesn't live in that world. There is no opposition to the empire. And if you do oppose it, you're on the chopping block because you can't criticize it. So there's, there's like no legislative immunity for speaking out on the floor. Uh, there are none of the things that we would consider norms. For there's no electing a different emperor, <laughs> you know. No, it's just we will. He's not giving back those emergency powers ever. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Why do we need what's, freedom? <laughs> yeah. What's What's fascinating is Mon Mothma comes from a period. In fact, we see her during the Clone Wars at several points alongside Padme, using that democratic institution to affect change, to openly debate critical aspects of the Clone Wars. They don't always end up on on sort of the, the winning side of the argument, uh, but but there's some some meaningful traction that can be gained there. It's it's not a lost cause completely. It's it's clear from her actions and, and sort of her demeanor here, uh, just in the context of um, her comments about the other dinner party guests. Hey, these these folks work to do every undo everything that that I've accomplished that she can accomplish sort of a precious minimal amount using the democratic framework that remains. And, and it's, uh, it's happened repeatedly throughout history. It's happening right now as we see play out in Ukraine, but, but using or co-opting the trappings of democracy to give legitimacy to an otherwise, uh, you know, fascist or, or um, you know, nefarious means is, you know, Hey, the people voted for this. This is, this is what everyone wants all 98% of them. And they all voted uh, very voluntarily in, in that capacity. She and recognizes that voluntarily. Yeah. To, to, well, they're just using the barrel to point at your options there. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's freedom. You're free to choose. Uh, that said uh, on the note of, what are we going to do about a oppressive, scary regime is how do we classify the insurgents who are on Aldandi? They're money movers. They're just, they're, all they're doing is just moving some money, making a withdrawal from the Bank of the Empire and relocating it to rebel coffers. Um, I, I put this on the outline just because it draws the distinction um, pretty clearly just in terms of how the, they act and other uh, the, the, the sort of setup 
between that small group uh, led by Vel and Cassian between these fighters. Vel and her team, I think, are, are sort of classically your uh, your insurgent group. These are probably some of the earliest members of of the Rebel Alliance, although it doesn't seem like they're calling themselves that yet because there is no alliance. Um, and then Cassian coming in with his cool necklace and his promised 200k payday. Uh, interestingly here, uh, Vel and the crew, they're not aligned with any system. And, and in our world, they're not, they wouldn't be aligned with a country. These would be, uh, you know, uh, I hate to, all the, all the examples of non-state armed groups are oftentimes bad ones, like the Taliban or ISIS or whatever. But they're, the, they're a non-state armed group at best um, because they're not affiliated. They're not a member of a state's armed force. Uh, status matters very much in wor real world conflicts. And by that, I mean who you are, how you are classified as a fighter on the battlefield. And uh, non-state armed groups, uh, when fighting against the state, get precious little in the way of protections. Uh, there's a huge imbalance in the number of, of uh, law of war protections that exist uh, within a non-international armed conflict. So like an internal struggle, sort of classically like the, the galactic civil war and a traditional armed conflict like World War II, where it's country versus country slugging it out. Uh, what that means for those, those soldiers is much like Cassian, they don't have nearly the amount of protections uh, that that say a a uniformed soldier of you know I don't know Shindrilla if they if they have a standing army would have uh, if they were openly in in combat against the empire and just like Cassian uh, they put themselves at extraordinary risk taking a mission like this they seem to sort of agree that it's a suicide mission they're either going to succeed or they're all going to get blown out of the air but. Uh, it's an extraordinary risk and, and uh, you know, that's not without a baseline of protections uh, against things like torture, uh, you know, conviction without trial, that sort of thing. But compared to a, the, the robust protections of, say, a prisoner of war, uh, it's, it's night and day. They get a little bit more than, than what Cassian would uh, as a mercenary if he were captured. Uh, but it's a very risky thing from a legal perspective and just a personal safety perspective to, to take up arms uh, in that capacity. Although we see in, we see in episode four that the empire doesn't exactly have rules against torture. Uh, they, They're more like uh, guidelines. Yeah. <laughs> no torture a kid. Interrogation <laughs> droid that uh, sparks at Leia right before that door slams. Yeah. It was a malfunction. You didn't see what happened uh -huh. after that door closed. Yeah. I, I wonder <laughs> I wonder if they have some types of laws and guidelines against it, but then it's just commonly not adhered to. <laughs> yeah. Well, you get the classic situation, you know, you anything can be exigent circumstances if you bend logic enough. Um, you know, you can apply that that argument to Leia. It was it's been applied. Repeatedly in our recent history, it was like a central plot point in 24 with Kiefer Sutherland again and again. Um, so you again, you can you could justify in a twisted way a lot of uh, awful things. And at the end of the day, the, the, the thing about the law of war, the law of armed conflict is 
there is an enforcement mechanism, but oftentimes it's not in play until after the conflict is over. And a lot of times it's the victor that sets the conditions. That's why there were no Nazi trials of any accused criminals on the Allied side. Uh, those were handled domestically. Uh, that's why we had the Tokyo trials in Nuremberg. Um, and so, and, and you see that play out in, Star, in the Star Wars universe. There's a whole uh, storyline about what, what they did with the Imperial survivors, striking it, who do we prosecute, who do we let go, et cetera. So we should finish up, but I want to highlight Karn is fired for cause. And everyone who worked below or above him is fired for cause as well. He only has one line in this entire episode, and it's mother. And it's then he gets slapped by her. That's battery. Brilliant filmmaking. Unlawful touching. Yeah. Parental privilege. You screw it up. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I'm sure we'll learn more. Uh, and like where home was? Did he go back? You know, was that Coruscant? Where where did he go? Uh, but brilliant visual storytelling. And hats off to the actor for looking broken beyond repair for uh, a massive mistake that got, uh, was it five people killed? So yeah, very well done. So I, I know it's not the last we'll see of him, but I just want to highlight, yeah, terminating for cause. So uh, there's no way around that. So with that, well done, everyone. We covered a lot of ground tonight and uh, there definitely will be more to follow. Uh, and I, I look forward to seeing who Mon Mothma is trying to recruit. So if it's Bale, if it's, who is she trying to get? So Leia. The hypo- my hypothesis is Leia. Is this how we get Millie Bobby Brown to, you know, be Leia? Uh, Maybe. <laughs> you know. But like, it would be a good um, uh, sort of like cover story for like Leia is just an intern. So, you know, an intern, uh, adopted daughter daughter of of a of a colleague yeah it's layer um general dodonna i think was his name okay those are because i think it's leia dodonna and mon mothma and admiral akbar are the ones that are generally credited with founding the alliance i think all good theories and we're gonna find out (laughs) <laughs> I'm, I'm confident we will see jimmy smiths again with a little more gray hair it's and you know what just shut yeah. up and take my money so we'll uh just stay oh. and just to set the record straight before we uh we end i also wasn't a huge fan of the darth vader rampaging down the hallway scene so that was oh, I wasn't lumping you in. No, I know. No, I just, I wanted, to be, I just wanted to be sure it was clear. <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. Don't get me wrong. I have a deep love of all of that kind of Star Wars, but I like this. It has to be <laughs> earned. It can't be an hour and a half of just lightsaber smashing. You have to earn it. Yeah. So with that, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll be back next week. We'll also be back for Lower Decks and She-Hulk because we live in a 
uh, a, a wonderful age where everything we love is now on TV. So stay uh, until next time, everyone. Be well. <laughs>